Hello, friends. You're back with episode 137 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and you are tuned in to the weekly show where we are able to highlight some of the greatest resources and stories that we see on this week's Our Weekly issue at ourweekly.org. My name is Eric Nance, and it is my pleasure to be talking with all of you today. And I am joined at the hip, as usual, by my co-host, who's just as frantically preparing for a certain workshop as I am, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this morning? Doing great, Eric. Uh, can't be more excited. We were less than seven days away from PositConf. It'll be my first in-person R Studio slash PositConf, and super excited to be putting on this workshop for quite a few folks at this point. We uh, have some exciting TAs, I think, that are going to be in the room with us, so uh, I, I couldn't be couldn't be more thrilled and looking forward to the weekend. As we were remarking in the pre-show, it's getting real now and real fast, right? And um, we just got note, of, it was about a week ago, of the TAs that are joining us. And it is a pretty nice list, if I dare say so myself. I'm sure we'll be talking much more about this after when we get back together. And there is a one programming note to mention. But since Mike and I will literally be at the conference for early next week. There will not be in our weekly episode next week, but we will be back the week after, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of stories to tell in the mix of the usual our weekly fun that we banter on here. But speaking of our weekly, we are here to talk about our latest issue for week 37 that has been curated by Jonathan Carroll, another longtime contributor to the Our Weekly Project. And as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow Our Weekly team members and contributors like you all around the world. And yes, we're going to hit it heavy, so to speak, in our first highlight here, because we have another early adopter in the WebR world who has entered the fray, and it is none other than last week's Our Weekly Curator and Golem Architect, Colin Fay. And today we are discussing the third in his series of blog posts on bootstrapping a WebR-powered app integrated with an ExpressJS API. Now, of course, this is not the first time you heard about WebR on this very podcast, but Colin takes a unique approach to this, and I really encourage you to not just read the posts we're talking about today, but also the previous two posts. They set the stage quite nicely, where he has built a streamlined replication of the, you might call the Hello World of Shiny, the famous Old Faithful Geyser app that you see in countless tutorials and Hello World examples. Now, in those previous posts and those explorations, he only used the base R installation of packages. Technically, he didn't even use Shiny itself. He just replicated the data and then used a JavaScript library to actually plot the histogram. Now, naturally, that's fine. But like any R user, we want to tap into the vast community of R packages that are out there that are now available for WebR itself, which, as of this recording, is now over 18,000 of the packages are now available for WebR. That is a monumental achievement in and of itself, which we highlighted uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, George Stegg's uh, blog post in the highlight. Now, out of the box, the JavaScript object that WebR helps you create will handle the package installation. But you could say it's a little forgetful. Kind of like how you forget where you put your keys sometimes. Well, guess what? Every time you boot up a WebR-powered app, it doesn't remember you going to it before in terms of package installation. And hence, it actually has to reinstall 
any additional package that's not included in the base core R distribution that WebR is interfacing with. Now, you know me, I can, just like Colin, see that there's a lot of opportunities for more efficiency here. So what can we do to make that more efficient and as well as potentially offer the ability to run these web apps in environments where maybe there isn't a connection to the outside internet? You know, things like that are definitely key in mind of, of myself as I'll get to in a little bit. Well, Colin notes that the way that R manages packages is not exactly intuitive. And in fact, it sounds like he's got a lot of epic rants that are ready at the taking on that, which I'd love to hear more about him about. Maybe he needs to be a third time guest on a dev series to make that happen. But I digress. He does take inspiration, even with those caveats, from R's built-in install.packages function alongside WebR's own version of installing packages to basically bootstrap his own script to help download and install the packages in a directory structure that will be compatible with WebR. And that script that I just talked about is actually written entirely in R, and it's, of course, inside the blog post that Colin wrote here. But there's still a very important next step, right? We need to take the contents of the downloaded packages and send them to the WebR library and, by proxy, the WebR file system. Now, in a true sign of the times, Colin did what many modern devs are doing. He um, got a little help from ChatGPT. I'm trying to find this appropriate JavaScript widget or JavaScript code to basically parse this directory tree. And sounds like it took a few different prompts, which, again, I feel seen. That definitely happens for me, too. It's not always right the first time. He's a little nudging along the way, but he was able to get a robust snippet of JavaScript to parse this directory tree and then to be able to post that into the WebR file system. And sure enough, like Colin does for most of his R adventures, he actually has written a small package in NPM, or Node.js's package manager library, so that you could actually install this yourself without having to write the whole script yourself. So that's pretty darn nifty. And this is a very promising approach. Colin mentions at the end of the post there are still more ways to make this more efficient. And in fact, this is something I'm exploring personally. Um, I mentioned it maybe once or twice on previous episodes. I am part of an R consortium uh, sanctioned pilot to help produce a shiny application composed of either container technology or via WebR and be able to transfer that to the regulators, or in this case, the FDA, as part of a quote-unquote mock submission process. And in our case, we do want a completely self-contained version of this WebR-powered app so that the user, the reviewer, so to speak, doesn't have to tap into any online resources to run this app locally. So we've got some work to do, but I'll have, have a link in the supplements of the show notes to the meeting minutes where we had a great conversation with George Stagg and Winston Chang from Posit on their advice or how we can make this happen, which I think, Colin, you might be interested in learning about this too if you're listening to this. And also I have a link to Colin's issue on the WebR repo itself where he did some initial brainstorming with George on how to make this more efficient. So I'd say definitely watch this space because it sounds like it's going to get even easier in the months to come. But yes, another promising adventure 
and a promising new way to kind of have your have the best of both worlds, be able to tap into the art community of packages and to be able to bootstrap that efficiently in your web hour powered app. So lots of fast moving things, but following the adventures of Colin, Bob Rudis, and many others in this space, it's definitely a fun, a fun uh, adventure to follow for sure. So yeah, Mike, um, you're going to build yourself a web powered app with, um, I don't know, a hundred packages installed. Sounds like it's going to take a while if that's the case each time that uh, I would want to use that app. And, and Colin's use case is an API here. And right, you, you certainly don't want to have to reinstall packages each time the API is launched. And if I'm understanding this this correctly, because WebR is you know, still fairly fairly new to me, I haven't necessarily played around with it that much. When he says you know, reinstalling packages each time the API is, is launched... That essentially means each time anyone navigates to to that URL, right? Because it's uh, your your browser or your own PC, right? Sort of becomes the server um, if when you're you're using WebAssembly. Am I correct in thinking about it that way? That's exactly right, Mike. And in fact, I tested this out because another link we have in the supplements here is what the repository website that George Stagg has put together that gives you a list of all the WebR compatible R packages that 18,000 plus as of this recording. When you visit that app, if it's like a quote unquote new day or a new session, it is actually bootstrapping a WebR powered app in that package repo listing. And it did take a good minute or so for that to finish this morning as I was putting together the show notes. So yes, that's why I mentioned earlier, there's a kind of a forgetfulness of this process at the in the current state. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and I think the great thing about what, what Colin's doing, what, what Virla is doing, what, what a lot of other folks in the community are doing is, is everybody's sort of taking small bites out of you know this bigger problem of, of not necessarily problem but but bigger use case of how to improve uh, WebR in terms of it, its performance and making WebR apps or, or WebR sites or utilities sort of try to perform as good uh, you know if not better I don't know know if better is possible but but as good as if you were deploying it on uh, you know a dedicated server or something like that so I think. You know we are very early in the in the life cycle of WebR, and it, it's really cool to see folks you know sort of in the wild wild west here, like like Colin, keep trying to take chunks out of the problem and keep trying to make small advancements. Which which I think Colin made a few small advancements here that are, are really really interesting to to folks you know like yourself, Eric, who, who have a use case as well for trying to potentially uh, package things up in a WebR framework. And, you know, Collins, again, his use case is an API, but I imagine that this issue would similarly exist if you're authoring a Shiny app as well. I know that there were uh, some advancements uh, with respect to WebR in terms of its file system or, or connecting your own file system uh, to, to a WebR app or sort of mounting storage. I don't, I don't know if that's the right way to think about it or not, but I imagine that that would sort of be the place where I know that's that's where Colin was looking uh, to try to sort of uh, redundantly have have packages there such that, um, you know, it didn't, they didn't need to be reinstalled each time his API was launched. So so again, you know, it's just seeing small 
chunks uh, being being taken out and, and small uh, small holes being drilled in, in this overall problem of trying to continuously improve WebR. And it's it's super promising. It sounds like you know all the right folks are, are in the conversation. It's great to hear that George Stagg is, is in your conversations as well. Uh, he seems to be one of the leaders of this whole WebR project uh, over from the posit side. So a great blog post and I'm always really interested to see, you know, what the, the latest improvements uh, are in the WebR space. And it was as if Colin was writing this for us too, Mike, because at the, near the end of the post, guess what? He makes a Docker container of it all because we like to container all the things too. So that was very nifty. If you just want to try this out so quickly and you have Docker installed, boom, there. Bob's your uncle. As I say, you got your Docker container right there in the, in the writing. So that is I don't even think of it that before, but I could have technically merged both of my pilot efforts into one place with the Docker setup in the WebR. Oh, it's almost like Inception almost. But anyway, there, like you said, Mike, there's lots of ideas to, to glean from this. And yes, I believe George is going to give a talk at PositConf. So I think I will be near the front row on that one for sure. And definitely at least shake his hand for all the help he's already given me on my pilot um, escapades here. But yeah, it's a fascinating space to watch. Yes. And I can't help but thinking that there's some way that Docker could help uh, improve the WebR performance experience. But but that's that's a problem for folks like, like George who are much smarter than I am. <laughs> you and me both, Mike. Well, one could one could view what Colin wrote in the previous highlight as a way for him, kind of you know, showcasing his development journey on making these WebR powered apps. Sometimes you need to put a little bit of extra narrative around certain pieces of it. And in this next highlight, you could think of that in a similar way, but in very much a mathematical sense. And I admit, reading this one does give me flashbacks to my dissertation writing days and some not-so-fond memories, but at the same time, this is a really nifty trick. And what we're talking about here, one of our favorite publication systems now, which is the Quartal Engine, of course, and be able to put equations in the documents that we're creating. But maybe we need to, you know, give a little nudge or a little annotation on certain parts of that equation, which... Obviously, if you're teaching math or statistics, this could be a big help to you. Well, our next highlight comes from Luke Pembleton, who is a genomic breeding scientist at Berenberg, and he talks about a really nifty way to take an existing LaTeX package that can be installed on the fly in your quartal document to help annotate famous equation write-ups that you often do in LaTeX. The caveat here is that this is at this time, only going to work in PDF format. So immediately I was thinking about, could I hook this up with MathJax? But it seems like not quite yet, but I'll watch that space, I guess, in the future. But it's actually a pretty straightforward process to tell Quartal that you need this additional package, which I believe is called Annotate Equations. You know, pretty logically named, if I dare say so myself, compared to other LaTeX packages, which have some of those cryptic names known to humankind, but, oh, oh rant over. But in any event, once you put that in your preamble of the YAML, which I think is called header includes, which you can declare that, then Quartal will take care of getting that package for you. And then there's a nifty mechanism where you break up your equation into different, they call it nodes. Think of it as like areas, like to the left of the equal sign, maybe it's a summation, you know, symbol, 
the superscripts and subscripts and everything like that. And then you can just simply add your annotations, which I believe is standing on the shoulders of the TIKZ, T-I-K-Z, graphic library to help power where the annotations go. There is a bit of customization you can do for like, if it's above or below the symbol and just how far left and right it needs to be. So as like anything in, in graphic kind of design, you can probably tweak this as much or as little as you need. But I can see this as a huge win if you're adopting Quartal for, you know, authoring your teaching documentation, maybe a course syllabus or course module, and you're already in the PDF landscape anyway, this seems like a great, a great way to supercharge that extra bit of helping hand to your students on just explain what the heck is that summation doing. I could have really used this when I was writing my dissertation and putting these massive convergence limit theorems and all this. Oof, yeah, I'm getting the flashbacks again. But either way, this would have been nice back then. So if I really have nothing else to do, I might just go back to my dissertation and see how this works. But that's not going to be for a while, folks. Don't hold your breath. But in any event, if you are writing PDS or Quartal and you're doing any kind of math or stat teaching, I think this is a great technique. Okay, I need a, I need a breather after those flashbacks of LaTeX, Mike. You you take me home. Hopefully, this was something that you think might be useful too. I'm as somebody who would like to think that he's pretty good at math. I have a college degree in it, but I'll be the first to admit that when I see a long equation, uh, 99% of the time, it's not obvious to me what's going on in that equation. And I'm sure there's some folks out here who read mathematical notation like it's their second language. I am am not one of them. I need to break it down piece by piece. Uh, and I'm, I'm typically cr very grateful for folks who, you know, below the equation, most of the time have a list of what each element uh, within the equation represents, right? Like a bulleted list. Uh, and I try to do that myself for any mathematical documentation that, that I author. Uh, but Luke Pempleton has taken us a step further than even that. And he's provided us with a guide on how to annotate your LaTeX equations in a Quarto document. And it looks very similar to what you can do in, in ggplot2 with geom annotate or geom text or the gg repel package, which allows you to, to sort of easily uh, point with, with arrows and, and text to a, an element on your plot uh, and, and call that out specifically. So for anyone who's used LaTeX before to author equations, you, you might just be used to writing out the equation on a single line from, from left to right in your LaTeX code. Um, but Luke introduces this concept of, of splitting your equation into nodes, as you said, Eric, that allows you to instead author your left to right equation that's going to render in your PDF, but you can author it by writing latex code from top to bottom, which is really, really cool. Um, and you just have to sort of add this tag node element for each sort of piece of the equation as you author it. And within a Quarto doc, uh, what that means is that you can use the, the equals text, T-E-X, chunk header uh, to be able to put uh, your, your LaTeX equations within that, that code chunk, and it'll render really nicely in your PDF document. That was something I didn't I, I had not known yet before. I was sort of used to the double dollar signs uh, for, for authoring my LaTeX equations. And as you said, you know, you have to include it in the, the YAML header. Uh, the, the annotate equations LaTeX package and uh, make sure that you install that. And not only can you have uh, an annotated arrow, maybe this will be the last thing that I point out, you know, uh, an, an arrow that points to a particular element in that equation, but you can highlight that element uh, in a box 
by essentially sort of uh, this box would have a, a semi-transparent background on top of the element within that uh, equation. And it could line up, you know, with that, the color of that box could be the same color uh, as the arrow that's pointing to it. So it makes it very obvious which element is being called out. And again, it's it's sort of difficult to to narrate this uh, on a podcast. It's really something that you need to see for yourself. So so I'd encourage you to, to check out just how, how visually appealing um, Luke has been able to make yeah, these latex. Uh, good equations. call out to some of the things I've done in the past with visualization with Gigi Annotate. Yeah, this is a very similar approach for LaTeX itself, and it does look fantastic. Like if I was uh, in in a very long ago past life when I was in grad school, there was one semester where I was a TA of a statistics course. Well, I would have been all over this with my slides, and if I had to do the PDF Beamer route. Hey, shout out to all the Beamer veterans out there. I see ya. I hear ya. I did so many of my slides in that. This would be a great fit for it with Cordal. So great, great find. And glad that we can talk about this for all of you that are either consuming or producing content for teaching these very important concepts. I have a use case for this literally today. We get these random notes on Twitter or social media about people seeing stuff, right? Well, a lot of people tend to think that these could be visitors from another galaxy in and of itself. And that's where our third highlight comes to play. Well, we've mentioned in previous episodes how much fun it is with the Tidy Tuesday initiative that you can bring a lot of fun data sets to the community of data scientists out there and they can produce some fun visualizations or statistical summaries. Well, back in 2019, one of the data sets that was released was UFO sightings that was collected by the National UFO Reporting Center. I didn't even know that existed, so I already learned something already with this, but it's a pretty fun data set. It's got some interesting attributes, such as the location and latitude and longitude of the sighting, the date and timestamp of when it occurred, a description of the sighting in more of a free text format and and a few other attributes. And there's some ample opportunities for some cool descriptive summaries and visualizations, which back in 2019, a few members of the community did uh, share on their very... But why not take it up a few notches, Mike, where instead of just doing those, you know, basic visualizations, we could actually build a statistical model that accounts for the uncertainty in our prediction estimates and leverages a data-driven approach to get to those estimates of parameters. What does that sound like to you? You know what that sounds like to me? Bayesian models. And that's exactly where our last highlight author, Jack Kennedy, who is a data scientist at Jumping Rivers, took his analysis of this UFO sighting data, where he actually leveraged full-fledged Bayesian models written in STAN to explore these data and give us some nice, you might say, data-driven, interactive explorations of it. So, Mike, I, I need a breather after all that math talk. Maybe you take me through what happened here in this fun model here. Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand why Jack used a Bayesian approach to model uh, UFO sightings. I don't know why we would want to account for any uncertainty because I think we're all pretty certain that, that UFOs uh, exist and that, that aliens exist out there. That's <laughs> the hot take of the day. Uh, <laughs> but 
but it's a pretty interesting uh, time series in, in terms of the observations and, and the data that uh, constructs this UFO sighting reports for Great Britain data set. You know, there's very, very minimal near zero UFO sightings up until just about the year 2000 when things spike to uh, a high of over 150 uh, recorded UFO sightings uh, per year which is pretty interesting. And then right around 2010, it starts to to come back down. So Jack had a, had a couple interesting hypotheses about why he thinks that this might be the case. You know, one could be, obviously, there's an increase in UFO traffic over the earth uh, during this time, or uh, the emergence of the internet brought like-minded people together, improving the ease of reporting, or uh, the 1996 blockbuster film Independence Day had some kind of effect on people reporting UFO sightings. I think all of these, uh, maybe minus the first uh, hypothesis, are, are probably quite probable. And you know, Bayesian approaches to modeling time series data uh, can be can be somewhat tricky sometimes. Um, and and Jack notes that he went through a number of different approaches, but sort of ended up. Um, after trying a, a bunch of different Poisson-based models, ended up leveraging a negative binomial regression model um, and, and used spline terms to flexibly model the nonlinear trend in the data because it's it's kind of a strange time series, again, where most of the data is, is near zero between 1940 and, and 2000. And then you have this spike, uh, this, this, this curve between 2000 uh, and, and present day when the data starts to come back down uh, after the year 2020 to, to near zero again. So he leverages a combination of uh, R and Stan. He uses R to construct the spline terms, I think, which were really important in, in fitting this model as closely to the data as possible. And then performs his in inference using Stan and uh, with the help of the tidy bays package, which which really allows us to take our output from Stan models and and convert it into something that is a lot more useful from a data frame perspective, from a tidy perspective as as well in authoring uh, these posterior summaries plots. Uh, you can take a look at based upon the, the confidence that you're you're willing to to go with and see really just how close his model is to the actual data. That's sort of how the, the blog post wraps up. And I was I was pretty shocked um, because of the nature of this data, how strange it is, how, how near zero most of the data is with just the, this one curve. Um, so it's I was really impressed to see Jack sort of fit a model that comes as close as it does to to fitting the data that he used to construct that model. Um, so really interesting uh, blog post here. I think it's a, a pretty cool, fun use case, right? Using UFO sightings data. Um, and it's it's awesome always to see blog posts from the Jumping Rivers team who are, who are always pushing the limits. Yeah, and, and really towards the end of the blog post are one of the reasons that even though I'm not as proficient in Bayesian modeling as I would like, I cannot deny the fact that when you're able to capture what they call the posterior samples of these predictions and be able to account for your, in essence, confidence or credible intervals, they call it, and really get an accurate picture uh, for those data points, how it does get quite a bit wider when you get to that spike, right? Because that is a very gnarly, you know, you know hump in the curve, so to speak, compared to that relatively flat line of zero counts. In a basic model, you might get some like a basic linear fit. You're just going to get a weird line going kind of up, but not really accounting for that 
variation. So being able to account for that accurately, um, well, we can never be 100% accurate, but you can use a data-driven approach to at least account for how far you're off from, quote-unquote, the real prediction. I think that that gives you a wealth of possibilities for really summarizing these different portions of the time course. And that's why, at least in my day job, Bayesian models are becoming a lot more important in how we're modeling complicated efficacy measures and, and the like in life sciences. So it's it's definitely a trend and having this example posed here is a great way to walk you through just what's possible. So I really commend Jack for writing this in a very accessible way. And STAND itself has, I would say, alleviate a lot of the hurdles that maybe somebody new to Bayesian analyses might encounter if they're using existing packages in this space, such as JAGs and whatnot. I don't have the best uh, time with JAGs in my older days. But yeah, STAND seems to be um, making a lot of positive momentum in this space. And it's always fun to, to see just where you can unleash these models to and um, what insights you can bring from it. Absolutely. And, you know, when you are working with a data set like this one that only has 80 data points in it, right, one for each year between 1940 and, and 2020, roughly, um, you have to be incorporating some uncertainty. That's this is me on my soapbox. But please, uh, yeah, please, please leverage some Bayesian techniques. Uh, if your use case looks, looks like this, right, that the data uh, doesn't necessarily represent some sort of obvious trend or anything like that. Incorporate some priors that you might have about uh, the, the use case that, that you're working on. You know, apply the data that you've collected uh, to those priors and, and, and try to find, uh, you know, a, a way to represent the uncertainty that you do have about how the system works. So that's me. Me and my soapbox. I'm very glad to see that Jack took that approach uh, and, and would love to see more, more folks. Yeah, every time I see something like this crop up, I have in my fancy schmancy bookmark management system a whole tag dedicated to Bayesian analyses for follow-up, and this is going right in that list as well. And you as a listener have even more follow-up to do because there's a lot more content involved in this Our Weekly Issue that um, Jonathan has curated for us, so we'll take a couple minutes for our additional finds. And, of course, every time I spot a post from Ihui Sia, the author of Knitter, I'm going to jump on that. And he gives us a preview of what's to come in the upcoming release of Knitter version 1.44. And there are some nice quality of life enhancements and a bug fix with respect to Quartal documents. But honestly, the other nugget in that post is that I found out in, in a previous post that Ihui finally took a well-deserved vacation earlier this year and was able to take a, a month or two off to completely disconnect. And boy, that guy deserves it. Um, so I hope you had a great time in your vacation there, Eway. I know, yeah, you work so hard on maintaining Knitter and the R Markdown ecosystem. So kudos to you. And yeah, looking forward to the next enhancements of Knitter. So I found a really interesting blog post from Shannon Pelegi on her Piping Hot Data uh, blog. And it was all about this R project sprint that she participated in, which was an in-person collaborative event to contribute to base R, which was really cool. So they took a look at, uh, I guess, a bunch of the issues that exist uh, in the base R code repository, and they triaged and addressed some of those issues in this project sprint. And she worked on on a couple. Uh, one that she worked on was the documentation primarily for the base uh, paste function, which was really interesting. I think documentation, particularly regarding uh, the collapse and the recycle zero 
behaviors within that function. So, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's amazing when folks, you know, contribute to open source packages that are out there and, and people contributing to, to base R is almost mind blowing to me. So I'm very, very jealous of the experience that she had. It sounds like she learned a lot and, and I would love to be able to participate in something like that in the future. Uh, and, and the other bug that she addressed too was the t-test bug within the, uh, a bug within the t-test function of the stats package. Um, and she she tagged a, a few of the different uh, issues related to that that bug and, and talked about how they went about solving that. And, and she felt that it was a, a huge success that she can now confidently either submit a bug report or address an existing bug report within base R and really learn the nuances of, of how folks uh, contribute to base R and how everything works there. So it sounds like it was an awesome experience. Uh, I thought it was a fairly unique blog post. And uh, if you're interested in learning about how our project sprints work, learning about her experience and, and potentially maybe getting involved in the future. I, I think this is probably a great blog post to get you started. Yeah, and it actually brings back a callback to as as you're seeing these more community-driven enhancements to base R itself, which again is is a terrific way to give back to this amazing project that we're such big fans of. I guess I wouldn't be doing this podcast, but this actually has roots over over years now but i had the pleasure in my ironically last recorded episode for the time being of my main r podcast i was able to sit down with heather turner and serenjeet kaur bogo about the initiative of driving the community enhancements and enriching this next generation of r core development so i'll put a link to that in the show notes as well but it's nice to see the seeds that were planted back in 2022 and earlier, really take the fruition through these sprints. And yeah, Shannon, a great write-up as always. And I believe I'll be seeing her at the Posicomp next week. So hopefully so. And I'll get a chance to say hi even more. Yes, it looks like a lot of folks that, that we we know were participants in that 2023 R Project Sprint. I see George Stagg's name on there, and I see a lot of other uh, familiar names, folks that we've talked about today and on previous episodes as well. So I definitely have uh, I definitely have some some jealousy and some Im- imposter syndrome. It sounds like that must have been a, a really really amazing learning opportunity. Yeah, and, and honestly, in my I call my R bucket list, if you will. I will at some point get involved in one of these sprints. You can mark it here, folks. I made the declaration on September 12, 2023, that someday Eric will be part of these sprints. So hold me accountable, folks. I, I definitely want to be a part of it. It's on the record now. <laughs> yeah, no turning back, as they say. Well, we hope you never turn back of keeping our weekly as part of your your daily, you might say, our content consumption. You know, it's there were so many great stories to learn from. Great tutorials, great new packages. Um, Jonathan put a huge list of packages together, and I only have skimmed through thus far, but there's a lot of great finds on there as well. But if you want to find out more, well, again, everything's at rweekly.org. And if you find a great resource, new package, blog post showcasing R in the real-world setting, or a new event that you want people to know about, and much more, we are a pull request away, as they say. You can have a link to the upcoming draft, Right there at the top of the page, everything's in all markdown all the time. It's very easy to get that contribution sent to us, and we'll, the weekly curator will merge that into the upcoming issue. And if you want to get a hold of us personally, um, your trusted co-host of these podcasts, 
are available on social media. I am at our podcast at podcastindex.social. Uh, Mastodon. I'm on the other thingy at the Rcast. Uh, you know what? And also, I tend to cross post each of the episode announcements on all three platforms. So happy to get in touch with you on those as well. Uh, Mike, where can the listeners find you? The best place is probably Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. And also, if you are going to have the good fortune of being in Chicago next week, come look for us. We'll be there um, for quite a bit of the conference, and I'm um, happy to meet all the R Weekly listeners out there. And you, I might, I might have some stickers to share. So hashtag just saying. And uh, I, I assume, similar to other podcasts hosts in in the last few years. Uh, Eric and I will be meeting in person for the first time. So that's super exciting as well. That is right. We've been recording how many episodes together, and this is the first in reels, so to speak, meeting for us. So we're going to have lots of of fun just sitting down together. And finally, (laughs) first of all, me thanking you for joining me on this Excavate all these, all these episodes in person. So that will be, that will be lots of fun. All right, well, it's going to time to close up shop here because we got even more workshop prep to do and other fun bits of our day jobs. But we appreciate you so much for joining us on this episode. And once again, we will be off next week. But again, come find us in Chicago if you want to chat more about fun art stuff with us. But until then, we will see you back in a couple weeks. So long, everybody. Wow, how do I go from web art to equations? Well, anyway, I'll make it work. <laughs> Is using one of our new favorite publication, you know, package. Well, our next highlight comes from Luke Pembleton, who is a genome. I need a vacation.